After 20 years, the rituals of September 11th are deeply rooted. And chief among them is one call, never forget. The American people will never forget the cruelty that was done here. We will never forget the nearly 3,000 beautiful lives taken from us so cruelly. Never forget the Americans who died here that day. The refrain is the same, never forget. And every year, people remember the victims of that day. But the people in power? Well, most of the architects of our post-9-11 world still hold prestige, opining on the news of the day, endorsing political candidates, or, in the case of George W. Bush, painting. It sounds as though you were, you were ready to dismiss the idea of W as an artist, but you changed your mind. Well, when I first saw his paintings, I was sure I would hate them, but there was something kind of innocent, sincere, earnest, almost childlike. With trillions spent and nearly a million lives lost in the last 20 years of U.S.-led wars, we will likely never have a full account of the human toll. Now the question is, if we will even remember it. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Today in our series, The Course of the Forever Wars, Part 2, The Present. Much of the fight for accountability for crimes during the so-called War on Terror is excavation, reminding us that the past is still present. And heads up, this episode does include descriptions of torture. But first, to get a sense of how much has been forgotten, we're starting not in a courtroom, but at a football game in Texas. Pass is caught. Jimmy Graham has got a first down inside the 15, and this Dallas defense is getting shredded. October 6, 2019. The Green Bay Packers and the Dallas Cowboys. Not a bad game for a former president to watch, or a famous talk show host. But it surprised many people to see a shot of George W. Bush and Ellen DeGeneres side by side. Ellen was on her new iPhone. George seems to be eating a snack. It looked like a good time. As for the viewers... There they are, uh, you know, laughing, chumming it up. Uh, People are not happy about this. If I told you at that time that Ellen DeGeneres would be on television defending her relationship with him, nobody would believe you, and it's incredible what a little bit of time time can do. Human rights activist Rafael Shimanov didn't watch the game. But he did watch what Ellen had to say about it to her million-plus viewers on her talk show. She thought it was important enough to, to start her show explaining to people and contextualizing why she was there and why she didn't, you know, have an adverse reaction to sitting next to a war criminal. That's not legally speaking, by the way. No one from the Bush administration has ever been charged by the International Criminal Court. People were mad, and they did what people do when they're mad. They tweet, and uh, but here's one tweet that I loved. This uh, person says, Ellen and George Bush together makes me have faith in America again. And, um, here's the thing. I'm friends with George Bush. In fact, I'm friends with a lot of people who don't share the same beliefs that I have. We're all different. And I in her explanation, Ellen actually, I think, misread why people were upset, and I was seeing red especially the way it cut to this audience that was just like eating it up. 
When she was saying those words, I was seeing the images from Iraq uh, and Afghanistan and all the other things that George Bush was responsible for. He also saw one more thing. On set, Ellen was standing in front of a blue screen, which meant he could easily edit in images behind her. So Raphael made his own version of the clip. He dropped in images from Iraq, including the torture at the Abu Ghraib prison. While Ellen is talking, you also see this slideshow of a naked man on a leash, another being frightened by a dog, and then cut to the audience, cheering for Ellen and Bush. And by the time I reached the prisoner with the mask on, the iconic photo with the wires and the cloth over his head, that frame immediately lined up with Ellen doing the same, where she has her hands out. And in the torture survivor's posture, his hands are out because he's wired to things and scared and in pain. And so his hands are out. And then in her version of that same posture, she was just like, you know, like trying to be likable and trying to be like, it's no big deal. And then that's the moment I knew like, oh, people, I should see this. So here's the question. Do you know the photo Raphael's talking about? Or are you drawing a blank? For now, let's just say that after Raphael posted the clip online, it was disturbing enough that Ellen's team put a fair amount of effort into their copyright takedown requests on social media. That just made it go viral. But Raphael also noticed something else. The reaction was also from younger people who were like, I never heard of this before. This is my first time hearing about anything George Bush ever did. And so on Twitter, he started getting messages like this one. Hi, Raphael. I just wanted to say I had no idea what the Abu Ghraib prison was before your Ellen post. I've done a simple Wikipedia uh, reads on it, and it's absolutely heart-wrenching, and I feel ashamed to be an American. I was surprised people didn't know about it, even cursory, even the name, even the image, that iconic image. I keep thinking that the collective memory is accumulative and that when something happens, we learn from it. And what I've learned from this experience was that our collective memory isn't accumulative and it just, it's sort of like our feeds. Like our feeds are like waterfalls or all of our screens and they sort of just come and go and depending on when you check in on it, you're going to get one piece of information and depending if you repeat it or not or you share it or not, it disappears. And that to me is really frightening. Raphael had found himself in one part of the war on terror's present moment, historical amnesia. And while most people do remember Iraq had nothing to do with what happened on 9-11, some details of Iraq and the war on terror have faded. And for many, that includes Abu Ghraib, even though that fight for accountability is still going on 17 years later. Catherine Gallagher is a lawyer who's been working on behalf of Abu Ghraib detainees with the Center for Constitutional Rights. Raphael used to work there, too. And over her many years on the cases, she's witnessed the same shift that he did. The more recent years, whether it's law students or high school students that I've spoken to, or even members of the public, when I say Abu Ghraib, it doesn't necessarily mean something to them. When I show those 
photos and I try and show photos only that I think are quite well known, I can sometimes hear gasps in the audience because people are not familiar with Abu Ghraib and they've just never seen this before and didn't know that this happened. So what did happen at Abu Ghraib? It was a detention center outside of Baghdad, which had served as a location for torture during the Saddam Hussein regime. And after the United States invaded and occupied Iraq in 2003, it then used that same prison, that same detention center that was so equated with Saddam Hussein's torture regime in the minds of Iraqis. Thousands of Iraqis were rounded up and and held on the territory of the Abu Ghraib prison, some in tents, and then a smaller number of people in a two-tiered concrete prison block. And for a number of months, that prison block really became hell on earth for the civilian Iraqi detainees. The photos that became synonymous with Abu Ghraib were taken by Americans in that prison block. And in 2004, they were leaked to the media. These photos showed naked, hooded, terrified Iraqis in stress positions, in forced human pyramids, in positions of sexual assault, sexual humiliation, falsely believing that they were being executed with wires attached to their bodies. Horrifying photos came out. Photos showing U.S. Army guards who shackled detainees, menaced them with military dogs, humiliated them by putting women's underwear on their heads. Many of them appeared to be filthy, some malnourished, some beaten, many covered in blood and their own waste. Catherine says she has heard hundreds of these stories. Over the course of these 17 years, we've represented 338 individuals in these torture and cruel treatment cases. And zero of those individuals were ever actually charged with a crime. For those individuals, it's been a long journey through the U.S. justice system. And Catherine is still impressed by their willingness to trust it. Those brave men and boys turned to the U.S. justice system to try and get some level of accountability, some level of reparation, and frankly, even an apology for the harm that was done to them. The defendant in these lawsuits is not the United States. The U.S. government had its own investigations, and ultimately, 11 low-level soldiers were convicted. The words bad apples were used. And U.S. officials, including President George Bush and Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, were adamant that Abu Ghraib did not represent American values. I shared a a deep disgust uh, that those prisoners were treated the way they were treated, that that their treatment does not reflect the nature of the American people. I feel terrible about what happened to these Iraqi detainees. They're human beings. They were in U.S. custody. Our country had an obligation to treat them right. We didn't, and that was wrong. These lawsuits are against private companies, military contractors. The U.S. occupation of Iraq was a massive undertaking, and to carry it out, it relied on an unprecedented number of contractors to fill the personnel it needed. It hired for-profit corporations, 
to help carry out interrogations and to serve as translators to the military in the detention context. For the interrogators, the U.S. brought in a company named CACI, or CACI. CACI is a systems integrator. We've been known to be one of the premier industry leads for systems integration. And for translation, it turned to a company called Titan, which later became known as L3 Services. These companies work side-by-side with the military, though the contractors were paid much more. So the cases that we have brought over the last 17 years now have been against those two private contractors. What Catherine and her team argue is that these companies and their employees formed a conspiracy with military personnel to torture prisoners at Abu Ghraib. This was supposed to soften them up for interrogation. Ultimately, Catherine says that it meant that even when prisoners had no information to share, some would confess to anything to end the torture. So the theory of our case is that the contractors stepped into a command vacuum that existed in Abu Ghraib, especially on this night shift. And because of their perceived role and expertise as contractors, the fact that they were being paid more, they really stepped forward and helped set the conditions for how the military police treated the detainees. So it's not that we're alleging that in all these cases, the contractors were going and physically beating detainees, but that what they were doing is giving the instruction to the military police so that by the time the detainee would come into an interrogation, they were terrified and broken people. Catherine's colleague Majid, we're not using his last name, was one of the first people to interview the detainees from Abu Ghraib. Before the photos came out, many Iraqis had heard rumors of torture. And at the radio station he worked at, they put out a phone number for people to call. He said at one point it was ringing 20 or 30 times a day. And eventually, he got involved with the American lawyers. It's been 17 years, but I would say probably 500, something around 500 detainees I interviewed myself. And what stood out for many Iraqis, including Majid, was not just the physical torture, but also the role of humiliation. He remembered one man he interviewed named Saad. Many other detainees will be taken with their family members. For example, a father with his two sons or three sons. That was very usual at that time. And that's what happened with Saad. They would force him to hit the father in front of the other brothers. And they bring all the family in the prison and ask each son to, to hit the father. And also they did the opposite. They would ask the father to, in, in, in a way for humiliating them. And also they would ask the son to shave the head of his father and also his mustache, like in, in only one side of the mustache and keep the other. So it's humiliating in our community. They know that. After these kinds of experiences, it was not easy for the men who joined the lawsuits to put faith in the U.S. legal system. And it took effort to convince them. It wasn't actually that easy for us to, to make them trust, especially when the American lawyers, same American characters who were the ones who were tortured them, and the lawyers also Americans as well. So uh, that part was difficult for us 
But one of the reasons is that they know us, we are Iraqi, and they trust us, and they know we trust those lawyers. Other reason I would say, which I, I concluded is, is like, there's no other way, no other, any, any institution would try to help them file a lawsuit. Or we were the only one doing this. So they didn't have any other option, I would say. CCR, where Catherine works, has filed three lawsuits against the companies at Abu Ghraib. One was dismissed, one was settled, and now there's just one left, Al-Shimari versus Khaki. This one is on behalf of just three plaintiffs. It actually includes one former Al Jazeera journalist who was detained while reporting on a bombing. Over the many years of this litigation, Khaki's kind of main theme has been that, look, we were at Abu Ghraib, but everything that we were doing with the military and because we were there with the military, one team, one fight, if they have immunity, we have immunity. We can't be held liable. This may sound simple, but over the years, it's taken different forms. In legalese, that principle might translate as derivative sovereign immunity, battlefield preemption, or the government contractor defense. Each one is different but is based on a similar argument. There are many legal responses to that. At the end of the day, this is a for-profit corporation that by the terms of its contract was obligated to supervise its own staff. It was also obligated to comply with the laws of the United States. We reached out to Kaki to comment for this episode, but they didn't respond by airtime. But its former CEO and chairman, J. Philip London, wrote a lengthy defense in the form of a 2008 book called Our Good Name, a company's fight to defend its honor and get the truth told about Abu Ghraib. It's 802 pages. Catherine's team and Khaki have been to the Court of Appeals five times in this case. And each time takes a toll on the plaintiffs in a different way. For our Iraqi-based clients, they were prepared to come to the United States for their depositions and then, under circumstances that we still do not understand, taken off the plane at the very last minute and unable to travel for their depositions. In the end, they had to get their depositions via video link. You know, so much of the United States was saying, oh, this is horrible. What happened to them in 2004? In 2016, they're not allowed to travel to the United States. So then that that takes a, a toll, too. Being made to feel as if you have done something wrong just by virtue of having been detained without charge and tortured. All of this up and down, up and down to tell this and be questioned about it is not easy. Majid said he felt embarrassed by the way the former detainees were let down at that time. We were like trying to have them believe us and believe the American legal system. We've been always telling them they're good people, they will help us. But then what something happened, like when they will be prevented to, to go to the US, this make an embarrassing and, and, and a complicated issue for us. There was another pause in 2019. When the case was just weeks from going in front of a jury, Khaki appealed again, and it took two years for the Supreme Court to allow the case to proceed. 
Catherine's team and the former detainees were prepared for a long fight. But she said she didn't think any of them thought it would be quite this long. We try and prepare as best we can our clients for what it's like to litigate and bring a case against a multi-million and now multi-billion dollar corporation, you know, that it's not going to be an easy case. And you can say that and you can believe it and they can believe it, but the reality of these cases is they are very difficult. In the end, Catherine says the final verdict for the Abu Ghraib detainees is not just about whatever decision comes from a U.S. court. Of course, the outcome that we want is one that validates and recognizes the harm done to the individuals we represent. That is the goal, but we recognize that the the law is not always written or applied to protect the most vulnerable. It is also a tool to protect power, to build power. The outcome of that case ultimately will not define who they are. I might say quite a bit about who we are as a U.S. society and legal system if they are denied justice. There's another issue at play here that goes beyond this set of cases. Khaki is arguing that it should enjoy some kind of immunity because it was working under the military. But the military has its own court-martial system to hold its forces accountable. And Khaki isn't part of that either. Essentially, what Khaki is arguing is that there should be no law that applies and no forum for accountability. You know, cases could not have been brought in Iraq because of a directive that essentially said that contractors should be excluded from Iraqi jurisdiction because they are kicked back to their home jurisdiction. What Khaki is seeking here, in my opinion, is really for there to be no forum and no accountability. And I think that that is an extremely dangerous outcome. And that's because the outcome affects the future of the U.S. military. Contractors have been part of the military for decades, but the massive privatization of the military under George Bush was another hallmark of the post-9-11 era. And for a long time, it went mostly under the radar. The late Donald Rumsfeld, as Bush's Secretary of Defense, had declared a war on bureaucracy on September 10, 2001. And it marked a wave of privatization that ranged from meal services to healthcare to interrogations. In Iraq, experts say the soldier-to-contractor ratio is now one-to-one. During World War II, it was just a tenth of that. That one-to-one number was in 2008, at the height of the U.S. military presence. By 2020, U.S. military contractors actually outnumbered U.S. troops in the Middle East and Afghanistan. More than half of the defense budget, $370 billion, now goes to contractors. That's nearly the same as the GDP of Norway or Israel, and it's a break from the past. Often what we see after a military pullout is that contractors are left in their stead. So having contractors who at least will argue that the law doesn't apply to them or that there are gray zones of law, making it difficult to hold them accountable is really a very concerning trend that we've seen. Those gray zones of accountability reverberate beyond Iraq 
including with the CIA torture program that was sanctioned and defended by the Bush administration. In Europe, Poland is currently seeking the testimony of two contractor psychologists, James Mitchell and Bruce Jessen, who were paid millions to help develop the torture program used in CIA interrogations. Neither Mitchell nor Jessen had any experience in conducting actual interrogations before the CIA hired them. They were paid $80 million to interrogate prisoners at secret prisons, black sites in Poland, Lithuania, Romania, Afghanistan, and Thailand. Today, the Biden administration is currently trying to block them from being compelled to testify in a case that is now at the Supreme Court. There has been limited change. In the wake of Abu Ghraib, contractors are no longer allowed to conduct interrogations. But neither the courts nor Congress has set a clear path for accountability in the future. And khaki? It still has billions in government contracts. And throughout the legal ups and downs. Overall, its stock has continued to rise. And that's why Majid and Catherine and the former detainees keep excavating Abu Ghraib. If we forget, then we do it again. And I think there are so many pieces of the last 20 years that have also, it's not even that they've been forgotten, they've been normalized. Whether it's a surveillance state, normalizing privatization, the othering, there has been a deep, deep harm done in this country. And it's now just in some ways baked into domestic as well as foreign policies. So what would accountability look like for Abu Ghraib? To each of its victims, it may look different. But Majid and Catherine said many of the former detainees agree on one thing, a formal apology from the U.S. government. One that Majid said they never heard when they were released. I've been talking to many of them. When I asked him what exactly you want, some of them would say, I want nothing, just an apology, an official apology which we never got from them. And also, as a lawyer, I would say that compensated for what they lost. I, I believe any kind of compensation will, will never compensate one second of being detained and being mistreated at, at that prison for nothing. But at least it could uh, reduce their, their hurts, their harms. And that's The Take. In our next episode, part three of our series, The Future. The war on terror paradigm changed more than the United States. Its methods are now global. It just hit me that my brother is the only one who got his appearance in court. The rest, they were just plucked off the street. So as far as we know, we are lucky because he got his day in court, but somehow still managed to disappear. What one disappearance shows about the metastasis of the war on terror. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Nagin Oliai, Priyanka Telve, Dina Kisve, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, Ruby Zaman, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Fenton is our editor. Aya Elmilek is our engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. Special thanks to Heidi Peltier from the Cost of War Project.